This is a CBC podcast. The following podcast is about family relationships and the harms of colonization on Indigenous people in Canada. It contains depictions of racism and abuse. If you need support, you can find information about where to turn for help at cbc.ca/theherboriginal. It's a typical Friday night in Prince Rupert. One of those summer nights when the sun sets late and the people even later. It's 1978. I'm 16 years old. Downtown is hopping. 16 bars packed in a small radius to keep a population of just 20,000 deep in their cups. I'm driving around with three of my white friends. We're smoking pot, having some beers and a few laughs, looking for something to do. Cruising through Apache Pass. No, not that one. Not the famous battle in the 1860s between the U.S. Army and the Apache, and not the Hollywood Cowboys versus Indians either. This one. A strip of road between the city's two most popular bars, the Belmont and the Empress Hotels. So popular that one night, pranksters painted a crosswalk directly from one bar entrance to the other. Apache Pass was the place for fishermen and shore workers to cut loose on the weekend. Payday Fridays were like Mardi Gras. Most didn't even bother going home to change and clean up. They headed straight to the bar in their denim coveralls, the fish slime still clinging to their hair. Hey, ladies. If you didn't have time to make the bank, the bar was more than happy to cash your check, since a lot of the money was coming right back anyway. Tonight, me and my friends are in my buddy's little gray Datsun. I'm sitting in the back seat, feeling good, kind of spaced out from the weed and the beer, and a little bored. One of my friends pipes up, What are we going to do? A couple of us shrug, before one guy's face lights up and he exclaims, Let's go beat up some Indians! The other guys chuckle. Then, one by one, they fall silent and turn in their seats to look at me. Sorry, says the guy who proposed the idea. I wasn't talking about you. You're not like the others. I crack a weak smile and nod. This is The Herb Original, Episode 2, Apache Passing. Cherokee people, Cherokee tribe, so proud you live, so proud you died. I'm a performer, born for the spotlight perhaps. Many have said, you're just like your dad, Libby. Like when I'm in the bar with my band, crooning. Wise men say Only fools rush Mostly it's the older people in their 70s and 80s who see my dad and me. Stout, round-faced fans thinking of him with misty eyes and smiles. They stare at my face 
into my eyes like they can actually see him in me and he's smiling right back at them. I used to feel angry about it, like it was an insult. I want to tell them about his violence, his selfishness. But I never do, and I never will. Because he gave them something, something good. He made people's lives better. He gave them his music, his jokes, his stories. He also gave them knowledge and culture, commitment and leadership, his support when they needed it. Colonization took so much from our elders, family, language, identity, dignity, and it left behind so many terrible memories. Why take away the good ones they have? Why tarnish their hero? I'm the legendary Chattestra. You know, I'm actually from Prince Rupert. This is my alter ego, the legendary Chad Estrada. Chad is a washed-up lounge singer that doesn't know he's washed up. He tells cheesy jokes and sings songs like Who's Gonna Fry Baloney, done to the tune of Drive by the Cars. I can't go on without the cream corn. Oh, who's gonna fry baloney tonight? The act was supposed to be a one-off, but people kept wanting more. Hello, Prince George. Those three words are enough to tell you just how much in the toilet my career is. But seriously, I love Prince George. I did a show at prison last night. Always nice to have a captive audience. I was actually, it was like most of the audience, but uh, after a song, they threw underwear at me. Of course, those ones had skid marks on them. And so, I continue to strut out on stage in my sparkly blazer, frilly white shirt and black slacks with the lights reflecting off my greased back hair and tinted glasses. And I see rows of smiles and think, it's showtime. Most of my performances took place just a couple of blocks west of the notorious Apache Pass at the local theater club. It is like a second home to stalwarts like me and my good friend and fellow thespian, Trina Decker, whom I've known for over 30 years. Today, Trina and I are hanging out, and we're reminiscing about our early days on stage together. I remember the baby dance, especially, because mm-hmm. you and I were working very closely together as a couple about to adopt a child, and very emotional play. Uh, I remember after the play, women approaching me and telling me they hated me because mm-hmm. of the character that I played mm-hmm. and the decision he made. And, and, and of course, you had to cry. You cried on stage. Mm-hmm. It was a very super emotional play, The Baby Dance. I still have the coffee mug for that. Oh, did, do you? Did you, I did you get one of those? I don't know that I did. Yeah, there's, uh, Peggy gave out coffee mugs and, and there was a photo of us as a group together on it. So Peggy always did like you better, I, I Rudy. Know. But there was something I never knew about Trina. 
I remember going to a Harbor Theater event, it was Utterfest, and the Hyda Dance Group was, was performing in the parking lot outside in between shows, and I was coming to get ready for the next show. And I saw you in the dance group, and I thought, what the heck is going on here? Mm-hmm. And, and as you kind of came around in a circle where I was standing, I kind of chuckled and said, what are you doing, Gina? And then you just glared at me. <laughs> you just shot me a glare and just kept dancing. And I was just like, oh, man. So it, you know, it, it struck mm-hmm. me that, damn it, she's Haida. How did I not know that Trina was indigenous, like me? Part of the reason why I decided to fly under the radar for so long is this conversation that happened around a dining room table one time when I was here visiting. At that time, um, they were talking about, and you'll know what I'm talking about, Rudy, uh, Apache Pass. And often this conversation that I would hear would include a thing about how wild the Indians were at Apache Pass. Trina started equating Rupert's Apache Pass with what she had seen and heard of in popular culture. And so, you know, in my little child brain, all I could think of was all the movies I had ever seen of Apache Pass, the real Apache (laughs) Pass, right? So where you would have, like, the Indians, and people can't see, I'm using air quotes, but the Indians up on, you know, the The top of the ridges, and they're all shooting their their arrows down at these innocent cowboys that were going (laughs) through, right? But I remember as a child, you know, coming back and forth, and we would drive. So my dad would, like, pack us in the car, and we'd drive to Prince Rupert for a long weekend, and we'd get to Terrace, and that's when we start going along the Skeena. And in my mind, the ridges were much like the ridges in those uh, movies that I watched as a child, and I would start getting anxiety, but I never really knew it was anxiety. Um, I just would start getting carsick, and I would eventually be down kind of on the floorboards behind my the driver's side, because that was my side, to be on Dad's side, and I would just be, like, literally balled up there and, you know, quite ill. And then when we got through the Skeena <laughs> and to the other side, when you start going up Rainbow Summit it would kind of miraculously disappear. Apache Pass. To me, it was just a place where people gathered together to have a good time. I never felt scared there, because I looked the part. Because I was so white-passing and because I didn't have connection to culture, being very aware of racism and being very, very aware of how people were treated if back then especially and and I mean it still happens today let's be honest Um, and so I decided to fly under the radar and for a lot of years I kind of buried that connection because I could you know my my family that I was adopted into were definitely not indigenous and there was if you look at me like you know you're not going to say oh Trina's Haida Um, So, yeah, I flew under the radar for a lot of years. I am dark-skinned. So dark that my brothers and sisters called me horrible names when we were growing up. Those unrepeatable words that separate people with dark skin from people with white skin. Sometimes I thought I was just dirty and that maybe if I would just scrub a little harder in the bath, 
For me, flying under the radar was never an option. Since I didn't look white, to fulfill my dad's wish to succeed in a white man's world, I had to fit in with them, become one of them. As far as I could tell, there were three ways to be one of the white guys. One, to be born to a rare, affluent, indigenous family. Well, we had bed sheets for curtains, butter knives for door locks, and a beat-up Ford Zephyr. So cross that out. Two, be a player on a varsity or a rep sports team. Nope. Can't skate, can't dribble, too fat to fly. Three, talk like them, wear what they wear, and act like them. So I boasted, got a downfield jacket, and strutted about like I owned the world. I was a very good actor many years before I got on a real stage. I lived in fantasy worlds at an early age and put on shows for my friends and my siblings. In school, when we were supposed to be working, my friends would catch up on TV shows that only existed in my mind. And they would look forward to movies from the bogus trailers I would make up. At home, the bit where I backed into the living room with the toilet paper stuck to my butt got mixed reviews, but hey, look at me now. The hardest part about playing the white Indian role was going along with them, pretending to agree with what they said, laughing at their jokes, no matter how uncomfortable it made me. Like in the car that night. Trina's disguise was better than mine, in part because for the first part of her life, she didn't know herself. All Trina knew was that she'd been adopted. The details boiled down to one sheet of paper she got from the government. So it said your father was this age when you were born, and he was this tall, and this is what he looked like. He had a sister who had hay fever, and this is what she looked like, and that your birth mother looked like this and was this age and had these siblings, and that was it. Like this little you know, kind of one line about each one of the significant people that they thought were significant to me. And I carried that little sheet around forever. And I remember, you know, thinking about, okay, these descriptions that I had about what people looked like. And every time I saw someone that looked like them, I'm like, oh, are you my mother? (laughs) Or are you my father? Are you my aunt? Until Trina finally met her biological Haida father in 1993. But while she was able to connect with him, He was not keen on her desire to go deeper into that world. Trina wanted to be adopted into the Haida Nation. You know, for me, it was about reclaiming identity, being reclaimed by a community that I had had lost to me. Trina was taken under the wing of Haida Elder and one of Prince Rupert's most respected Indigenous leaders, Margaret Atkins. Um, and Margaret was our mentor and she was like showing us, you know, how to, how to make our button blankets and how to make our dresses and, um, talking about the importance of your crest. And so I was like, oh, I don't have a crest. And Margaret at that time had said, well, Trina, I could just adopt you into my clan. And suddenly I felt like I'd been claimed. So that was a really powerful, powerful moment. And I am forever grateful to be connected. Margaret adopted Trina into the Raven family. And she was given a Haida name, Yalskani, which means the big auntie who looks after everyone. A fitting name for a person who always makes sure that everyone in her life, young, old, 
on stage or off stage, has an important role to play. Trina embraces both sides of herself now, wearing all of her parts like she wears her hide-a-button blanket, dancing through life. Not me. I have never wanted to jump into the cultural deep end, even as a kid, even though it was in my blood. I remember when I'd go fishing with my brothers. They called me a terrible Indian because I never fished. All I did was talk. They said I was scaring away the fish. I got bored quickly and would ask to go home just an hour in. This is the last time we take you, Irwin would exclaim. And in town, when Cliff would spot me following him down to the docks, he would throw rocks at me, telling me to go home. I got the message. That's a that's an insulting word, them days. Insulting or fighting words. Anybody say that to you, it's you lose your temper. This is my dad again. He didn't teach me many Somalic words, nor did he tell me the traditional stories. Because just like when we went fishing, I wasn't interested. But I liked being with him sometimes. I liked the deepness of his voice. The authority in it, especially when he was calm, in a good mood, telling jokes. I was happier reading books, making up movies and acting them out in my backyard, or playing with my friends. Lipan means it's gonna kill, kill his sister himself. And I know it. Why the why the I'm here. My dad had made it clear from the beginning that our culture wasn't meant for me. My success as an adult would have to come from acting white, from disconnecting. I recall one stormy night. It was just my dad and I, sitting in the living room, watching TV. When out of the blue he asked, So what are you going to do? I told them I was staying home because it was too rainy and I was broke. I recounted the story recently to my cousin, Sandra Didaward. He just one day, we were sitting at home and he said, you're a writer. And we've got enough people in our family working in a fish plant, cutting heads of fish, because I want you to go to school and succeed in the white man's world. And... You know, looking back at it, I mean, it was great. It obviously did. I did go. And yeah. it turned out very well. And he was very proud of you. Yeah. So well, where did, doesn't that kind of clash, though, with his, you know, the culture versus the, the modern world? Or how do no, you see not that? at all. I think how that's do you that? pretty easy to, I think it's easy to blend it. I think that our system is a timeless, it's timeless. It's existed for thousands of years. But his words meant that I would have to leave those thousands of years behind me. It was tough getting on that bus to make the long journey to Alberta, a province that wasn't very Indian-friendly at the time. But when I finally returned, his pride almost made it worthwhile. How he always told people what I did and assumed that because I went to college, I was an authority on everything. What is the name of that bug again in Africa that crawls into people's brains? 
I wish he'd been around to see me in plays, and especially to see me singing in my band and doing my lounge act. Rumors, Prince Rumor. If you want to live here, you gotta have a sense of humor. Rumors, Prince Rumor. I know he would have gotten a kick out of Chattestrata. And maybe, satisfied with my place in the white world, he would have at last helped me to connect with the culture. Instead, I remain stuck in the middle in a kind of racial no-man's land. I mean, I do try, sometimes, kind of. Many times I've given the food I don't like one more chance, like fish soup, essentially boiled salmon, or oolikins, greasy fish so thin and small that my brothers could eat 20 or more in one sitting. To appease my family members' expectant looks, I would sometimes lie and say, through watering eyes, Yeah, yeah, it's, it's not that bad. And a couple of times, I joined a First Nations group dance where everyone gets called by their crest to participate, doing my best raven, bent over, with my hands behind my back, weaving about. But it's forced, unnatural. I'm starting to wonder, what's wrong with me? Why can't I feel it in my bones? Why do I ignore the family meetings about getting our traditional names handed down to us? Why do I stay out of the battles for what is rightfully ours? Why don't I take language lessons or pick up a drum or join a dance group? It's like I don't have a spirit and people have said that in subtle ways. Like when my half-brother passed away. I was working at Friendship House. Usually when someone loses a family member, a condolence card is given by the office staff but my boss told me that my colleagues didn't know if they should get me a card or not. They didn't know if such things mattered to me. I was taken aback. Maybe my traditional Simshin name should be one that translates into The Outsider. There is someone I know who is, in some ways, like me. Michelle Bryant Gravel. A powerful woman, whether she's playing basketball or chairing an executive meeting. Originally from Lampalams, she's the Senior Director of Indigenous Relations for the City of Vancouver. Today, we're chatting through a Zoom call. Uh, so maybe I could just start by asking you, uh, because I don't know your full background, is did you spend any time uh, a part of your, your childhood on the reserve? I'm a little uncomfortable talking to Michelle about this because she seems to be one of the few of us who have got this all figured out, how to walk between both worlds. She tells me, though, it wasn't always that way. I remember being a kid in elementary school, and um, I didn't feel like... Uh, I didn't feel like I was included in Prince Rupert or in school, hmm. um, and I was kind of always felt like I was the other and excluded in a lot of situations because I was Indigenous. Um, so basically, uh, after school Friday, I'd head down to the seaplane base. Uh, I'd fly over to La Palance and spend the weekend with my grandma <laughs> and grandpa. And um, if my mom let me, I would fly back Monday morning. <laughs> the opposite was true for me. I never wanted to go to L'Aquilam's. 
I don't recall ever being asked to go on any trips there. Had my dad already seen something else in me? Michelle's relationship to the village was strong. So strong that, like me, she initially resisted being pushed away to predominantly white institutions. A small island in a vast ocean. I have a, very, a story very similar to yours in that my, my grand, grandpa um, and my grand and their siblings, especially Uncle Marvin, like really pushed me and said, you need to get your education. You need to leave here and you need to learn as much as you can so that you can help us in the future. And those words are being very distinct to me. And, and I never knew, like, what do you mean by that? And, hmm. and, you know, the ways of our elders, I never tell you exactly because I leave it for you to figure out parts of it too. Um, and when I was younger, I didn't quite realize, why do they want me to leave? I feel so comfortable here and I want to stay here. That story echoes in my heart. I was very comfortable cutting the heads off of fish unloading boats, making a lot of money, living with my family. But my dad said that I needed to go, and not just for me, but for him, my family, my people. Now that as I got older, I got it. I'm like, okay, now I know why. And for me, what that meant was um, I need to enter space, these colonized spaces as an Indigenous woman so that I can take up the space and create even more space for people who are coming beside me, behind me, after me, and for future generations. That's what I thought I was doing in the jobs I was taking, making change from the inside, behind enemy lines. Like my first job as a newspaper reporter, at a time when most Indigenous reporters were working for Indigenous papers, I was at a mainstream daily. Later, I became the first Indigenous department manager for the city of Prince Rupert. I hoped that I could be a role model, prove that Indigenous people can hold these types of positions, and create more opportunities for my people. And then I returned to my father's village, my ancestral home of Lamb's, where I thought I could take up my father's mantle, but do even more like improve the relationship between the people who are living on reserve with those living off, and to expand opportunities with the outside world. But walking in both worlds does not come easily, and some of us become stranded, not accepted by either world. Often, too, I get criticized, like, why are you working for them? Them being, you know, typically white, colonized organizations. Mm -hmm. And I have to explain that, that story like well if we don't learn about how they operate how are we going to make any change for our people from the inside out and um so taking up that space is really important but it's also really hard you know there's a lot of emotional labor that that we play in these roles that goes on when we are playing in this field and we are in these types of roles and there's a lot of negotiating between the two worlds because um, if you're not careful, the colonized world can swallow you up. Michelle resisted being consumed. She walks in the two worlds with confidence and success. She has a traditional name. She has regalia. She attends band meetings. Her voice is always heard. But it's not easy. It is tough. Like, I'm not going to lie. There are times when, you know, 
I I go home at the end of the day and just cry because it's it's hard um, to not be accepted by your own people. Mm-hmm. You know when when I when I lived in Lafayette as a teacher, um, when, as soon as I took my leadership role as vice principal in the school, um, in the first month I had you know my tires were slashed. Uh, a week later, someone hit you know rammed my car, but. You know, I keep going back to this uh, this statement, but we have to stop playing by the rules of the Indian Act and creating our own rules and our own. Um, we have to decolonize ourselves and decolonize our communities so that we can see ourselves as one people. One people. What about the Aboriginals? How do we do that? Where do we go? For some, going through their village is the only way to feel connected with who they are and where they come from. For me, though, the feeling of those scornful and suspicious glances, real and imagined, may never go away. And so I remain in limbo, looking for a way that I can be indigenous, and looking for a way to connect to my culture by better understanding the man who drove me away, my father. In the next episode, I go to my father's house, the Eagle Clan, in his village, to talk to his niece and protege about the man I barely knew. He was amazing. He was just an amazing person. Um, yeah, he was so good. He just sit there, and then he just speak his truth, you know, like, and you didn't doubt it coming from him. <laughs> you know, it was like, this is it. So I miss him like crazy. I I counted on him a lot. And I go back to Cannery Row, where in the 1940s my parents, along with hundreds of other Indigenous families, were brought into a new world of industrial production. And with it, a new economy, new diseases, and a new way of life. Education was not important. Survival was... So we moved around, my family, my parents moved around with the Four Seasons. Imagine, I thought the whole world looked like that. That's in episode three, It Takes a Village. Herb Original is written and produced by me, Rudy Kelly, and Carolina DeWright. Listen to your heart, and you'll pull through. Our sound editor is Jeff Walker. Our senior producers are Catherine Hansen, Jay Bertinoli, and Sherald Tobin. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.